begin here this morning. Uh, first of all, this is the season of Lent. This past Wednesday was um, Ash Wednesday. It's a time historically where the church begins a, a, it's a yearly cycle of just remembering the death, burial, resurrect, crucifixion, resurrection of Jesus. Um, and so Rock Valley Bible Church, you know, we didn't have a service on Wednesday night, but we've decided, and this is open for evaluation, but we decided that just every week in Lent that we would celebrate the Lord's Supper. Um, just it's a, it's a way to remember His death until He comes again. Lots of churches celebrate the Lord's Supper every Sunday. Um, and we don't do that, but yet we want to get a taste of what that's like here during the next six Sundays. However, we aren't so rigidly holding to that that we can't bend because next Sunday actually we're going to bend on that. We have our, our 10th anniversary service next Sunday. Uh, in fact, I, I'm pretty excited about it. I was looking through some old pictures of the church and um, emailed out those who were there with us in the very first service and uh, asked them to come and share a testimony of what things were like or what they remember in the last ten years. And um, I know some people, Conrad, have thought about some pretty funny things that have happened in the last ten, <laughs> ten years. But just we want to celebrate God's goodness to us. We'll be here next Sunday with that. But just I'm expecting again a, a packed service. And so we'll just not do the Lord's Supper that week. And we'll plan on it in the future uh, as we prepare for Easter. Now, right after Easter, one of the things you need to know, I think uh, most of you know, um, is that uh, Yvonne and I are heading to Nepal to do some uh, pastor's training. Yvonne's going to do some training uh, for some of the pastor's wives over there with leadership resources. Um, so you can just think about when are we going? April 10th is the date that we're leaving. But in your mind, you can think about Easter Sunday and then we're leaving like the Tuesday after that. Going to lay over a day and a half, I think, in San Francisco with Yvonne's folks. And then we're going to go off to Nepal for a couple of weeks and we'll be back. Uh, Lord willing, we'll miss only two Sundays and come back full. And so I'm just thankful that I have an opportunity to do this. What a, what a privilege it is for me to think about that's, that's my job. It's what you all support me to do is to be able to go over and be a blessing to the people over there. But it's not only me. You can have a chance to be a part of that blessing as well. And uh, I want Yvonne to come up and uh, just share some ideas that she has about gifts. We're going to go with some full suitcases just to give gifts to... Uh, we have a children's home, lots of kids at children's home that uh, love us support. Um, some widows we're going to help. Um, also, just some pastors giving some things out to them. So, Yvonne is had got some ideas and I just want her to share because there's going to be this box around a place you can you can share with those things. So, go ahead. Okay, so what I have here is a box uh, for donations and we want you to be a part of this as well and particularly for me, I'm going to be spending a week with probably about 10 to 15 pastor's wives, and I don't know for sure, but I'm guessing they have very little support and encouragement, and I want this to be a really refreshing time for them, and I want them to feel loved and built up, and so I want to bring gifts to them, and I'd love to have you join in on that, especially the women, and just so that I can communicate to them not only love from me, but from our whole church, and so I've tried to come up with some small and lightweight gifts to bring them, because... Our suitcases are going to fill up fast. And so I've been talking with Bobby Clinton about some ideas of things to bring for them. And so for these women, for the pastor's wives, uh, what I've come up with is um, some, for those of you who are knit or crochet, and this would include the girls too, is some, some washcloths. And Bobby Clinton thought that this would be something they would feel very special about getting because it's handmade and it's still small and light and they would use it. Uh, also, another thing that would be special for them is some jewelry. And it doesn't have to be real expensive, fine jewelry, and don't go out and buy new stuff. But if you have something that's nice that you're not using, they love jewelry, especially red and gold are their favorite colors, but anything is fine. So that would be another thing. And then um, I will be seeing some of the widows that First Love supports and then also some of the children's home workers. So if I have extra, I could give some to them as long as we can carry it. 
And then another thing would be for the children in the children's home. And I will hopefully be visiting two. Steve and I are going to visit the Bakunde one together. And I'm tentatively planning to go with Bob and Bobby to another one in Chitwan, which was their first children's home. And for the children, we're, um, we've come up with baseball caps for the boys. So I don't know, if you guys are like us, you probably have a few extras of these floating around. <laughs> so if they're dirty, just, you know, send, send clean ones. Um, and then for the girls, um, we're going to bring hair little hair scrunchies and ponytail holders. These have been actually handmade by some of the girls already in this church. And this one is kind of crocheted or knitted. And this one is with fabric, but just pretty hair things for the girls. And then one other thing, if we can collect enough of these, um, we were thinking at our house, I don't know if you if you guys know what these are, but these are littlest pet shop toys. <laughs> and um, they're not used in our house. And I think some of the other girls in this church might still have some floating around. So if we can bring some of these, these are nice and small. And we thought it'd be fun for them. They have very few toys. And this might be a small little treasure for them. So this box is going to be out for the next six Sundays, including today. And so you can put your donations in here and we'll see what we get. But I would, we would love to have you guys be a part of giving to these people. So we want to make it available to you and would love to have you join us in giving to them. Yeah, just to give you a perspective, we got whatever, 50 children at each of these children's homes. And uh, we have more toys in our house than they have in their whole place. It's not because we, we do have too many toys. We just try to get them out there. They just come in somehow, but a lot of it speaks about what they don't have. And in some regards, that's okay. In some regards, maybe they're happier for it. Um, but just little things would, would help them immensely. All right, for our time in the Word this morning, we have um, a lot of work. Mark chapter 3. How about you open your, your Bibles there? This passage of Scripture is all about followers of Jesus. Or maybe people following after Jesus or, or going to Jesus. Today... In our day and age, with social networking, we've become very familiar with the word followers. You can follow us on Twitter or follow our blog at so-and-so. And Facebook, they're not called followers, they're called friends, right? In LinkedIn, they're called um, connections. I think on YouTube channel, they're called, you know, SRU knows, subscribers. Um, it's a great way to get news out. You put something out there, everybody hears, well... So we come here this morning, we're just going to see all these people following Jesus and, and interacting with Jesus and coming to Jesus in groves. Now, some come for good reasons and come, some come from bad reasons. So it's a little bit like social media. When you follow somebody, it can be for personal reasons. Maybe you know somebody, a friend on Facebook, you want to just follow what's happening. Maybe you know somebody and you want to stalk them. Um, and maybe that's for, for bad reasons. But you can find out a lot about, about people um, maybe you follow for professional reasons, right? Maybe you're in the media business and you want to keep, keep tabs on the Twitter feed of somebody so you know everything that's happening with a celebrity so you can break the news story first. Or maybe you follow for entertainment. Maybe you have a particular music group or a particular hobby that puts out some of these things you're following after. There's lots of different reasons and lots of different reasons when it comes to people following Jesus or coming to Him. Why, why, why are they coming to Him? Why, why are they interested in Him? That's kind of the, the flavor of my message this morning. I've entitled it, Why Do People Follow Jesus? Why do people follow Jesus? As, as you know, the ministry of Jesus had its ups and downs in terms of popularity-wise, at least in chapter 1 of Mark. We see the ministry of Jesus starting with a bang. Multitudes of people following Christ. On, on several occasions, entire villages were there at the door of the home where Jesus was. In fact, maybe you remember the time when the paralytic was there uh, trying to get into the house. He couldn't get in because things were so crowded at the homes. That was on several occasions. In fact, the crowds are so big, chapter 1, verse 45, that Jesus could no longer publicly enter a city because when He came, there's crowds all over the place and it, He just couldn't move and couldn't maneuver any well. So He went out to the unpopulated areas. But still, chapter 1, verse 45, people were coming to Him from everywhere. The, the popularity of Jesus was great during His time upon the earth. And then things started to go down a little bit when He started to face some opposition. And down isn't necessarily a bad thing because Jesus was telling the truth and people were coming against it and they hated it. In chapter 2, we saw Jesus revealing that He can forgive sins. 
And the religious leaders didn't believe that. They didn't like that. They didn't like the fact that Jesus readily mixed with sinners, the tax gatherers um, and sinners of the day. They did not like that, to, to see Jesus, this religious leader, mixing with the riffraff of society. Then the religious practices that Jesus exposed what He really believed and did. He wasn't fasting because He said, My presence obliterates fasting right now. Because He can't celebrate when the bridegroom is here. And then when it talks about keeping the Sabbath, Jesus Himself listed Himself above the Sabbath. And the religious leaders hated that because they were ruining His system. And it was too much for the Pharisees and the Herodians. In chapter 3, verse 6, we see this monumental verse in the Gospel of Mark. Verse 6, the Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against Him as to how they might destroy Him. And this verse, chapter 3, verse 6, really sets up the whole rest of the book. If you write in your Bibles, I encourage you to, just go ahead and outline that or, or put a box around it. Just say, this is a key verse because everything from here on in is going to be Jesus and His confrontation with the religious leaders. He's trying to lead people in godliness. And they're trying to discredit Him to show that He is wrong. And there's just going to be this battle back and forth, this interchange. And there's going to be times where Jesus withdraws, like in verse 7 where our text comes. He's going to withdraw for His own safety, for His own ability to continue His ministry. Because if He'd stayed there, they'd overtake Him. And there are times when He comes back in, He's got some conflicts. And then He goes out, and then He comes back in, and just back and forth, back and forth. But the conflict is still there until the death of Jesus, when it finally ends and the Pharisees and Herodians think they won. But they didn't because Jesus rose from the dead. He conquered death just as He said that He would do. So just know that this conflict is going to be going back and forth here in chapter 3 and, and following and, and on beyond. So chapter 3, verse 7 is where we're going to begin. I want to start reading the, the first six verses here. Jesus withdrew to the sea with His disciples and a great multitude from Galilee followed and also from Judea, and from Jerusalem, and from Idumea, and beyond the Jordan, and the vicinity of Tyre and Sidon. A great number of people heard all that He was doing and came to Him, and He told His disciples that a boat should stand ready for Him because of the crowd, so they would not crowd Him. For He had healed many, with the result that all who had affliction pressed around Him in order to touch Him. Whenever the unclean spirits saw Him, they would fall down before Him and shout, You are the Son of God! And He was earnestly warning them not to tell who He was. Here's my point this morning. Why do people follow Jesus? Because of what He can do for them. Because of what Jesus can do for them. It's obviously the reason why this great multitude was following Jesus. Because of what He could do for them. They had heard that he could heal, and so they were coming for that. And He could heal all their diseases and all their afflictions. And Psalm 103 is truly full in Jesus. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits, who forgives all our iniquities, who heals all your diseases. Jesus is the one who healed all the diseases that were coming to Him. That's why they were coming, in fact. And look at the emphasis here in verse 7 and 8 on the geography. It says, first of all, that Jesus was in the sea. That's the Sea of Galilee up north of Jerusalem. It said a great multitude from Galilee followed. There were people all around that area right there. And also from Judea. That's in the south. In fact, Judea is a three or four days journey away. Jerusalem the next is just a little bit north. It's a three days journey from Jerusalem up into Galilee. And then Idumea, further south and further east. So we're talking three, four, five days journey just to see Jesus. And then it says that they were beyond the Jordan. That's on the other side of the Jordan, Perea. That could be just right across the Sea of Galilee, which is close. Or it could be all the way down south near Jerusalem. Several days journey. Tyre and Sidon in the north. A day or two journeys away. So they're coming like from all over to just to see Jesus. And why did they come? Verse 8. They came because a great number of people heard all that He was doing and came to Him. And their hope was that Jesus would do for them what He had done for other people. And the crowds were so vast, by the way, 
that Jesus cared for his own safety. He, he arranged for his boat to be prepared so he could seek refuge in the Sea of Galilee. So if all, all this crowds of people coming along and he said, prepare me a boat so in case they all come and, and, and overwhelm me, at least I can step in the boat and then back off a few meters. And so they, the only way they're going to get at me is they swim out there. But they can't tread water for that long, and so they're going to be... At least I'll get some distance till calm is restored, and then maybe I can go back in. But it was for his own safety of why, why he did these things. Picture a rock star. You know, fans cheering, and the rock star gives his concert, and, and then walks out, and everybody's clamoring just around, just trying to touch the rock star. You know, and you can just picture, you're kind of moving through this crowd, the security guards trying to get him out, and they were just thronging around. And that's exactly what they were doing with Jesus. They were trying to touch him so that they might be healed. Even in verse, verse 10, right? And he healed many with the result that all who had affliction pressed around him in order to touch him. They're, they're just longing, longing to touch him and be healed. And we, we get that picture even in, in Mark chapter, chapter 5 about the woman who just touched the fringe of his garment and was healed of her flow of blood that had lasted for 12 years. Such was the power of Jesus, the healing power just emanating from him. And everyone around was trying to, to touch and didn't matter what the illness was, Jesus was healing them. And that's why G people were coming to him, because of what he could do for them. And, you know, that's, that's the same today. People come to Jesus for what Jesus can do for them. They come because they say, oh, my marriage is a wreck, but if I come to Jesus, he'll fix my marriage. Or people come to Jesus because they think He'll reward them with a financial blessing. If I come to Jesus, I'm going to, I'm going to be rich and well off financially. Or maybe they come to Jesus and they think that I'm going to have a better life or I'm going to be healed of some type of disease that come to, to Jesus. And some preachers sadly preach that. Now, you weigh a balance here because on the one hand, surely Jesus does many of those things for us. But it's not necessarily a promise. When you follow the ways of God, there is blessing in your life, but it's a blanket blessing. It's not an individual blessing in every single case. But people often will, will come to Jesus because of what He will do for them, and then when it doesn't happen, they are upset and unhappy. And people are as fickle as this crowd is. So because here things are going great here. Everyone's happy, everyone's being healed, but give it a year or two, and you know what happened? A crowd of people started saying, crucify Him, crucify Him. These same people who were following Him here with the multitudes and the throngs then wanted His death. And, and I just say that is a good picture about people who come to Jesus today for the wrong reasons. When people come to, to say, hey, my marriage is broken, I need to have my marriage fixed. And then they come to Jesus thinking their marriage is going to get fixed and their marriage isn't fixed. Well, they say, well, I tried Jesus and He didn't work. Well, the, the problem is they tried Jesus for his marriage, for their marriage, rather than trying Jesus for who he is, the Lord of hosts. Or they got some other thing, and, and within a year or two, they quickly realize that when reality sets in, Jesus actually makes their life much more difficult rather than much easier. In chapter 4, the next chapter over, Jesus will tell the parable of the sower and the soils. He casts his seed everywhere. Some is along a path, and some is on the rocky soil, and some is on the thorny soil, and some is on the good soil, and the, 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 soil, the seed that's sown upon the path just goes away. But, but there is some seed there that's upon the rocky soil and, and upon the thorny soil, and they both sprout up pretty quickly. It's like, like, like these people here, these crowds who are hearing the Word and they're, they're excited about it because of what Jesus is doing for them. But after a while, when they realize that, oh, the worries of the world, the deceitfulness of riches will, will crowd them out and choke them out. They won't have any firm root. When the sun comes up, they'll wither away. And so likewise with people, just give it some time and you'll see when people who choose to follow after Jesus, what it is that they have come on. Whether they come on their own terms or whether they come on His terms. His terms is this. If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That means this, is that we deny ourselves, we deny what we think is right, we deny our ways, and we, we go to Jesus. And then Jesus says, what does it profit a man? Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses life for my sake and the gospel will save it. In other words, you need to lose your life for the sake of Jesus. You just leave your life behind for the sake of Jesus. You can't have your life and the life of Jesus. And that's what many people try to do. They try to have their marriage or their blessings and the life of Jesus. Jesus says, no, you need to leave all that behind and come to me. That's His terms. 
Anything less than the call of Jesus, anything less than total surrender of Christ will be just like the crowds. Adoring Jesus for what He can give, but quickly denying Christ when He demands that they give their life in return. So I just press this upon you. Are you a follower of Jesus? Are you following Jesus merely for what He can do for you? Are you following Jesus for who He is? Everything that He says Himself to be. Jesus is the Son of God. The demons were shouting that out. If you look there in verse 11, look what it says. Whenever the unclean spirits saw Him, they would fall down before Him and say, You are the Son of God! That's how we need to come to Jesus. As the Son of God. Jesus there was telling Him not to, not to speak and say who He was. We've seen that before with the unclean spirit in the synagogue. Jesus admonished him to be quiet. With a leper, he warned him to say nothing to anybody because his time wasn't yet. If the news got out too quickly, he would be overcome and crucified too quickly, I think is some of the reasons. He wanted to be among us to teach us and to show us. But when his time came, that's when the whole world knew. And today is far different. There's no hiding the identity of Jesus today. He is the Son of God. Chapter 3, verse 11. He is the Holy One of God. Chapter 1, verse 24. And at the end of the book of Mark, it's going to be this testimony, the crowning testimony. Chapter 15, verse 39. When the centurion who was standing right in front of him saw the way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the Son of God. Jesus is the Son of God. He is God Himself. He is part of God. He is he is divinity. That's what it means. I am. My, this is my beloved Son. He's the Holy One. And you either believe Him and trust Him with your whole heart for your whole life, or you'll follow Him as long as He continues to give good things. Well, can we learn the example of Job? The Lord is given. The Lord is taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's a true follower of Christ. Well, why do people follow Jesus? First of all, because of what He can do for them. And that's really not a good reason. Second reason, why do people follow Jesus? Because He's called them. Look at verse 13. And He went up on the mountain and summoned those whom He Himself wanted. And they came to Him. I love this picture. He's going up on the mountain. Mark doesn't tell us, but Luke says He spent the whole night in prayer just wrestling with the Father who His twelve would be. And those whom He wanted, whom He desired... He called, He chose, He brought to Himself, and they responded by following Him. Then the names come here in verse 12. And He appointed twelve so they would be with Him and that He could send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. We'll come back to that. The whole purpose of why He called them. Verse 16, He appointed the twelve, Simon, whom He gave the name Peter, and James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, To them He gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. And Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the zealot and Judas Iscariot who betrayed Him. This list of the twelve is given four times in Scripture. It's given here, it's given in Mark, it's given in Luke, and it's also given in Acts. Talk about the same twelve people. And oftentimes we see that there are two different names for people. Um, nicknames, if you will. Like even Simon, it says here in verse 16, to whom he gave the name Peter. Sometimes it's Peter in the list, sometimes it's Simon in the list. They're talking about the same person, right? Like S.R. or Stanley Ray. Talk about the same person. I know lots of people have different names, and that's what they have here. Um, and so you see, any, any discrepancies between this list is all because you got their names or their nicknames or the names they go by or, or this um, one way or another. It's very common. You think about Mark himself had two names. His original name was John. We also called Mark. Both those. Well, he calls the twelve. It's not like he didn't have any disciples. We'd already seen four of his disciples called in chapter 1. Peter, Andrew, James, and John. In chapter 2, he called Levi, whose other name was Matthew here in this list in verse 18. And we also know that there were many disciples who were following him in chapter 2, verse 15. But, but these twelve are, are, are special and separate apart from the multitudes of disciples that were following Him. Maybe a special designation of the twelve. In fact, often Mark will call them just the twelve. The twelve. He went with the twelve. 
He summoned the twelve. He called the twelve. The twelve were asking him questions. And the twelve becomes a technical name for these twelve men who traveled with Jesus, who ate with Jesus. Jesus gave himself to these men, trained them, and even sent them out. In fact, that's the whole purpose of why these men came. Look at verse 14. He appointed twelve so that, here's the purpose of appointing them, that they would be with him and that he could send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. Uh, on the one hand, I think this is needed because of the crowds. So many people coming that, that one man, even Jesus Himself, can't shoulder all of these people coming and all of their ministry needs and all the cities and towns. So Jesus would split them up and send them out to preach and cast out demons. And yet, uh, on the other hand, these weren't really the best candidates for ministry to be able to shoulder the burden of, of the loads um, that people had. Like this. If you were going to choose 12 people in the days of Jesus, I don't think you'd choose these 12. Um, because they're just the ordinary people, they are um, filled with problems, filled with sin. Um, so let's, let's just even think about this just briefly. We, we can't have spend a lot of time on this, but think about the fact four of them were fishermen. Chapter 1, he finds Peter, Andrew, James, and John. Fishermen were like blue-collar workers of the day. Um, not well-educated, not well-trained. Um, they were brunt workers. So think about, about Peter. He's the man with a foot-shaped mouth, always seeming to say the wrong thing. I mean, transfiguration. Jesus, is, the inner being of who Jesus is begins to shine through. Uh, and, and the transfiguration comes. And Elijah and Moses are right there with him. And, and Peter's like so excited, doesn't know what to say. And, and rather than being silent and appearing wise, Jesus opened his mouth and removed all doubt that he was foolish. He said, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let's make three tabernacles. One for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And then Mark comments, Mark chapter 9, verse 6, for he did not know how to answer because they were terrified. But he just said something. He couldn't remain silent. It wasn't his character. I know that when, when people just, just shout out things, say things inappropriate, that's not, it's not the best candidate for ministry. For those of you at prayer meeting, you know what that's about. But God uses people like that who just, who just shout, who just say it like it is and in fact, you think about Peter, he said the night we were betrayed, Jesus said that many are going to stumble, you're all going to fall away. Because the Scripture says, he said, no, not me. He says, yes, you will. He says, no, no, I'm going to death with you. He says, before the cock crows, you're going to deny me three times. I'm sure he's like, no way, no way. He probably left that meeting with Jesus saying, no way, Jesus, no way, I'm following you, I'm following you. And then this little girl comes up to him and says, are you one of them? No, 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 not me. I mean, so bold and so brash and yet so weak and timid. That's comforting, right? That's huge comforting. Well, let's look at these next two guys. James and John know better. Um, if you want to picture these guys, picture New, in, um, New York in, um, union workers who work downtown. You know, the bold and the brash and the strong and just right out there, just, just put it right out there. They are called the Sons of Thunder, Boanerges. Mark translate for, translates that for us. And no doubt, this is in part due to their personality. I mean, these were the guys who ready, when people were casting out demons in, in Jesus' name, but they weren't part of the twelve, they tried to stop them. And these are the ones who are ready to, to bring down judgment. They just wanted to go. These are the ones who are brass enough to say, Jesus, can we sit on your right and left in the kingdom? I mean, these are guys who want big things and accomplish. And Jesus had to rein them in many times. And uh, whenever people are bold and brash like that, you leave a trail of wounded people in their tracks. Those aren't the best people for ministry. But God used them. And that's encouraging. Or, or, or Matthew, the tax collector... This is like a, the one despised in the society. You think about Jesus, wouldn't He want to get people on His team who would be like um, recognized by the society and people who would have, make Him have a good reputation? You'd think that, but no, He chose to despise people. Or Thomas, well known for doubting the resurrection. Or Simon the Zealot, a revolutionary, ready to rebel. Not exactly one to submit to your leadership. And on top of that, throw in Judas who was eventually betrayed. He basically would betray Jesus. These aren't stellar men. 
But the encouraging things William Hendrickson says in his commentary, I'm going to quote, what points out the greatness of Jesus is that He took such men as these and welded them into an amazing influential community that would prove to be not only a worthy link with Israel's past because the twelve tribes and the twelve disciples is a strong link there, but also a solid foundation for the church's future. Ephesians 2.20, the church is built on the apostles and prophets. These are the apostles upon which the church was built. Christ Jesus being the cornerstone. But these are the men upon the foundation which the whole church stood. Yet He accomplished this multiple miracle with such men as these with all their faults and foibles. Even when we leave out Judas Iscariot and concentrate only on the others, we cannot fail to be impressed with the majesty of the Savior whose drawing power, incomparable wisdom, and matchless love were so astounding that He was able to gather around Himself and to unite into one family men of entirely different and at times even opposite backgrounds and temperaments. Including this little band was Peter the Optimist and Thomas the Pessimist. Simon the one-time zealot, having hating taxes and eager to overthrow the Roman government, but also Matthew had voluntarily offered his tax-collecting services to that same Roman government. Imagine the tension there. Peter, John, and Matthew, destined to become renowned through their writings, and also James the Less, who remains obscure but must have fulfilled his mission. We don't know anything about James the Less, other than he was less. I like to think that he was James the Short, because <laughs> that encourages me. But maybe he's like James the nobody quiet wallflower. We don't we don't really know. Supposedly these men who did great things, we know nothing about what what James did. But they all fulfilled their mission, and that is comforting to us. It's comforting to us because think about this: if God would choose the wise and intelligent, and the strong and the wealthy, and those with good personalities and the skilled and intelligent and the talented and the, the noble. What hope would there be for us? There'd be none. But God doesn't do it that way. God chooses the base things of the world. The, the truth of the matter is God uses the weak to accomplish His will. Listen to 1 Corinthians 1, 26-31. Consider your calling, brethren. And again, this is just like calling the disciples. Consider your calling. Consider when God called you. Now, it may not be up on a mountain like Jesus calling you in the flesh, but this is God's election of you. It's His choosing of you. This is, a, um, this is a sovereign call to come to be with Christ. Consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God had designed this. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame that which is strong. And, and the base things of the world and the despised. God has chosen. He's chosen the things that are not that He might nullify the things that are so that no man may boast before God. And I'm sure that all of these disciples, yes, they boasted, hey, look at how great we are. Who's the best in the kingdom? But in the end, they knew they couldn't boast before God because of who they were. And then Paul continues, 1 Corinthians 1, by His doing, you're in Christ Jesus. The only reason why we are here, the only reason why we're followers of Christ is because it's by His doing we're in Christ. Because we wouldn't choose Him unless He first chose us. We sang it, right? I love you because you first loved me. And we will go our own way in our sin. It's only because God opens our eyes to see the glory of Christ and draws us to Himself that we come. And that's intentional by that, that we might not boast before God, but by His doing we're in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So this, just as is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. The disciples were weak vessels. They knew they were weak vessels. Peter was confronted with that the night when she denied Jesus three times. And yet, God uses us and changes us and transforms us. You remember after the resurrection? Peter and John in prison because they spoke the Word of God so boldly. You say, well, what made a difference from timid Peter to bold Peter? Acts chapter 4, verse 13, the Sanhedrin, as they observed the confidence of Peter and John, understood that they were uneducated and untrained men. They were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. 
So these guys are uneducated. They're untrained. That's from the Sanhedrin. They're saying these guys didn't graduate from high school. They're fishermen. And yet, how is it they're so bold and they speak so clearly? Ah, they were with Jesus. I say being with Jesus can have a, a radical impact upon our lives. Jesus will transform souls. And the key to that is being with Jesus. Is that not the purpose of Mark chapter 3, verse 14? He appointed twelve so that they would be with Him and that He could send them out to preach. And Jesus transformed them by His presence so they turned the whole world upside down. Robert Murray McShane, it's not so much great talents that God blesses so much as great likeness to Jesus and His disciples are case in point. So why do you follow Jesus? It's because you were called? The only reason you followed Jesus is because you were called. Have you responded as these disciples did? It says in verse 13, Jesus called those whom He wanted. He didn't want the great and the mighty. He wanted the low. And they came to Him. The Word has gone out. The call has been made. The time is fulfilled. The Gospel, the Kingdom of God's hand. Repent and believe in the Gospel. Have you responded? The only reason we respond is because God calls us. Well, why do people follow Jesus? First point, because of what He can do for them. It's bad. Second, because He has called them. That's good. Third, this is bad, because they want to discredit Him. Verses 20 through 30. Verse 20, He came home and a crowd gathered again to such an extent that they could not even eat a meal. It just speaks about the overwhelming crowd they couldn't eat. And this isn't just Jesus. This is all the disciples. Everybody ministering here was so busy they couldn't even eat. And when His own people heard of this, they went out to take custody of Him, for they were saying He's lost His senses. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He's possessed by Beelzebub, and He casts out the demons by the ruler of the demons. Now, again, right there, you've got to notice the geography. They came down from Jerusalem. Jerusalem is up in the mountains and coming down to the Sea of Galilee is, is, is what's happening here. And as again, I mentioned earlier, three days journey. And, and they followed after Jesus only to discredit Him. That was their aim in going. That, that's why they went. They came to counteract the message of Jesus saying that He's possessed a Beelzebul. That is the, the Lord of the flies. And where do flies gather? On the manure pile. Jesus, He's the God of the manure pile. One translation of this. You go to the barn if you want to figure out what that smells like. It's not, it's not lifting Jesus up. It's tearing Him down for sure. They also said He casts out demons by the ruler of the demons. So Beelzebul or Beelzebub has some connotation, connection maybe with, with, with Satan himself as well. We don't really know for sure. But, but catch this though. They hadn't followed Jesus so that they could learn from Him. They followed Jesus so that they could refute Him. And you know the world is surrounded by people like that. Lots of people know a lot about God. But they don't know, and lots of people study a lot about God. A lot of people study the Bible a lot. But it's not to follow Him. It's so they can discredit Him. Academic world, this happens all the time. On secular campuses, it's vogue to discredit Jesus, all in the name of scholarship. People will go out of their way to put a blight on the name of Jesus. And wherever they can get their jab in, there's jab, right? They'll attack the Bible. They'll do whatever they can do. They'll deny the Bible. They'll say, oh, I believe in Jesus. Maybe they'll just attack it. Maybe they'll flat out no. Many atheists don't. You know, they, they write books against Jesus. And a lot of times it's not that they're ignorant. No, they're very smart. They have lots of things there, but they, they try to discredit Jesus. I remember a friend of mine coming back from college having studied um, all about philosophy. And he knew the arguments, how to deny God. And so he set me down. At a special meeting, he set me down. He tried to explain away God for me. Everything he learned is philosophy, worldly classes, which actually sucked him away from the Christian faith he possessed growing up. But you know what? People don't usually say they're trying to discredit the Lord because Jesus is fairly popular in our culture. But I remember one man doing so. Um, it was really a stark contrast. Uh, and maybe he was like a scribe. 
not, not really. But I was a single and in seminary. On one occasion, I was headed off to church and it was early in the morning and so I went to a park um, kind of just outside our apartment complex before church. I was sitting there on a pick, get away from my, my roommates just like some time alone. I don't think I've ever told you this, Yvonne. It's a strange encounter I had. Um, but uh, I was on the park reading the Bible. It's not the wisest thing to do in the heart of L.A., okay, just to let you know, okay? Um, and up approaches this man. He's an older man. He's a bit unkept, like maybe he spent the night there. Maybe that's where he lives. I'm not exactly sure. Um, anyway, he asked me how, what I was doing. I said, just praying. I mean, because I'm, I'm dressed. I probably had a tie on even back then. And uh, just preparing my heart for church. And the, he was interested. And so he engaged in a conversation for a while. And obviously, he didn't believe what I was telling him. But he was knowledgeable of the Bible. In fact, I remember, I don't remember what's up here on his forearm. I kind of remember it was up here like he was wearing more of a tank top or a church. It said Yahweh in script, in scripture, right on his, right on his arm. And, and Yahweh, I mean, you just, you look at the number of tattoos out there and not many times you see Yahweh being tattooed on someone's arm. <clears throat> so they had some knowledge of God. One thing led to another. He wanted to come to church with me. So I said, okay. And, uh, so driving to church, he says hungry. So I stopped off and I gave him some, got some food, fries or whatever. He got a coffee. I remember him spilling coffee in my car and kind of being, upset and irritated at that, but he's going to church, and I, I, I can't remember exactly what he said, but he said something to the effect of this, oh, this is going to be fun to hear what the preacher says so we can mock him, and that's his heart of what, what he wanted to do, and almost exactly like these scribes and Pharisees, why I brought this man to church, I don't know, you know, when you're single and in seminary and looking just to pour out yourself, you do a, a lot of those kind of things, and I brought him in, and uh, shortly after the first song, I looked around and he, who knows where he was. He all of a sudden, I think, figured out what was going on in that place. And he was wanting to discredit the preacher in the church, but it didn't work there. But that's what these scribes are coming down to Jerusalem to do. They're saying, hey, it's going to be fun to discredit this preacher, this Jesus fellow. And basically, they wanted to say, hey, Jesus is demon-possessed. And hopefully, they, you know, when people recognize this, they go home and stop the whole Jesus movement. Right? Stop this whole thing with Jesus. And so, verse 23, then Jesus, calmly, I think, <clears throat> okay, here. Jesus called them to Himself and began speaking to them in parables, just setting, setting it right. He says, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. If Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but he is finished. Jesus shows the foolishness of what the scribes just said. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense that Satan would cast out Satan. He says, okay, so let's think about this kingdom. If it's a divided kingdom, it's not going to stand, right? The infighting is going to destroy each other even without a fight and a battle from outside. Or a house. Husband and wife and children all divide against each other. The house will fall. And Jesus is saying, if you, Mr. Scribe, are so concerned about the ways of God, then you have to be rejoicing in this day. For indeed, if Satan is casting out Satan, that means that Satan has turned his warfare towards himself and, and the kingdom of darkness will implode and the kingdom of God will go on and progress. Why are you trying to stop this? These words, though Jesus is discrediting the one coming to discredit him. He's saying, your argument is bad. Such are the ways of God that God will always get the last laugh. Psalm 2, the nations are raging against God and it says that God sits in the heavens and He laughs at them. Saying, you think you know. You think you're so wise in your own eyes. You just wait. I've installed my King upon Zion, my holy mountain. And He will rule and reign. He will shatter the enemies. You better kiss the sun way of opportunity. That's what Jesus is doing. He's turning the table against the scribes to demonstrate their folly. Satan isn't divided. No, there's only the one other explanation that makes sense. Verse 27, But no one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his property unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house. This is the parable, right? This is what Jesus has done. He's come into enemy territory, has bound the strong man, and now he's plundering the house. Somehow, when Jesus was around, he had his his death grip around Satan and was plundering his house, holding him right there so he can plunder his house. All these demons are getting out because Jesus is holding Satan there captive for a season. 
Not that He could have crushed him then, but Jesus is going to crush him through the cross. Right? Because the prophecy of Genesis 3.15 says that the seed of the serpent will crush you on the heel, but Christ is going to crush him on the head. Christ is going to be crucified, but He's going to raise from the dead and therefore destroy Satan once and for all. But Jesus had a stranglehold around Satan. We saw that in the temptation. Mark chapter 1. The devil's trying to tempt him. Jesus conquers him. And so what it says is, is the kingdom of God is coming. Jesus is plundering His house. That's why all these demons are going out because Jesus has stronger rule and authority than Satan. And then come the solemn words of verse 28 and following. Truly I say to you, all sins shall be forgiven the sons of men and whatever blasphemes they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness but is guilty of an eternal sin. And the ways of God to describe was utterly clear. They saw the miracles that Jesus was doing. We saw even last week in chapter 3 when the man entered the synagogue with a withered hand. There was no debate about whether Jesus could heal the hand. The question was whether He'd do it on the Sabbath so they might get Him on a technicality of the law rather than on the reality itself. There was no doubt that demons were being taken out of people. No doubt that people being transformed were being out of control from, from the devil and from the, the, the demons to being under control and being healed. And, and all across, there was no doubting that. And the scribe saw that. He couldn't discredit the miracles. And so what did he do? He discredited the source of the power. He said the power of Jesus is really the power of Satan. And Jesus says, when you do that, your sins will never be forgiven. That's what it means to have the unpardonable sin. To blaspheme against the Holy Spirit. Say, well, what is that sin? I believe it's the sin of seeing the power of Jesus in all its glory... It's, it's the sin of, of witnessing the healing power of Jesus. It's the sin of beholding demons flee from possessed people and then attributing this all to the power of Satan. I think that's the unpardonable sin. And the key is verse 30, right? Because they were saying He has an unclean spirit. Jesus said, this is something that won't be forgiven. Because you're saying, I have an unclean spirit, you are saying that I, God, am Satan. Basically, what's happening there. See, it's one thing to be confused about Jesus. Jesus is patient with those who are confused. It's one thing to battle with unbelief. Jesus dealt gently with Thomas. Okay, put your fingers in my side. See here. It's one thing to struggle with the sin of the flesh. Jesus knows our every temptation. But it's another thing to turn against Jesus and take the offensive against the Lord and call Him satanic. And such a sin will never be forgiven. I feel like I need to say some things here before we move on. Because such a statement can prick the conscience of some people and say, oh, I committed that sin. Well, first of all, I say, look back at verse 28. Let's let verse 28 rule and reign. Truly I say to you, all sins shall be forgiven the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they utter. I mean, this is like the garden a little bit, right? You may eat from every tree in the garden, but just don't eat of this one tree. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so let the, the forgiveness of Christ as far as the east is from the west so far as removed our transgressions from us. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His loving kindness towards those who fear Him. As God, as the Father has compassion on His children, so God has compassion upon His children, knowing that they are but dust. God comes upon us in a compassionate, kind, and gracious way in the blood of Jesus Christ. And let's know that He forgives all sin. But there's only one that He doesn't forgive. It's the the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And let me just say this. Those who commit that sin have a heart that's so hard they don't ever want to come back. God has given them over to their sin and they won't ever come back. They don't have a desire to come back. So, if you have a heart that says, oh, I don't know if I committed the unpardonable sin or not. I'm not sure if that thing that I said in a moment of anger or, or the, that time you know, before my conversion was high on drugs and said something I shouldn't have said, did I commit the unpardonable sin? Listen, if that's you 
and you are seeking now forgiveness from that and repentance from that, you didn't commit the unpardonable sin. Because those who commit the unpardonable sin would never want to turn around and come back. God never turns away a repentant soul in seeking forgiveness. The reason why this sin is never forgiven is because repentance is never sought, never found. And that should comfort any soul that's concerned that blaspheming the Holy Spirit. So let me write. If you're concerned whether you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, you haven't done so probably. Because those who blaspheme the Holy Spirit aren't concerned about those kind of things. They'll just, whatever. In fact, um, I remember studying this one time and uh, coming across some YouTube videos which are pretty horrific. People speaking into YouTube blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Just arrogantly, just kind of, just saying, I, I just want to show you how, how arrogant I am against God. God is not there and they blaspheme the Holy Spirit and they kind of push this on and want others to do it. And I'm thinking, that is a stupid thing to do. Even if you don't believe it, what if it's right? You just cast yourself out. But such is the hardness of heart of people who commit this sin. Because those who haven't may have a soft heart to seek it, seek the Lord back. All right. Let's move on quickly here because we're going to celebrate the supper here in just a moment here. But why do people follow Jesus? Because of what Jesus can do for them. It's kind of bad. Because He's called them, that's good because of the work of God. Because they want to discredit Him, that's bad. And because they are family. This is, this is good and bad. All right? Verse 31. Then His mother and His brothers arrived. And standing outside, they sent word to Him and called Him. A crowd was sitting around Him and they said to Him, Behold, your mother and your brother are outside looking for you. Now these verses are really a continuation of a verse that I, I skipped. Verse 20, 21. When his own people heard of this, they went out to take custody of him, for they were saying he has lost his senses. Or as ESV is better at this point, he is out of his mind. Ecstasy. He is in ecstasy. He's just, he's just, he's just out of standing. He's out of his mind. And this phrase, his own people, difficult phrase to translate here in verse 21. Literally it means those from him. Hoi par autoi. Autu. Hoi par autu. Those par from autu. From him. Those from him. Probably like his, his own. Um, referring to his family probably. He just picked it up here in verse 31 and 32. It's his family. It's his mother and his brothers when they arrived. And they thought that Jesus had lost his mind and they wanted to, as verse 21 says, take custody of Him. They were trying to go inside to rescue Jesus from Himself. I think if they could, they would physically restrain Him, drag Him by the two arms, kind of walk Him out. Um, a little bit like maybe security guards would do at a ball game when someone is being um, disruptive a little bit. You know, take, I, got, well, I got this arm, you got that arm, and we're just kind of walking Him out. Just pay no attention. We're going out here because we got to we got to deal with this man. I think that's what they were doing. Yet the crowd prevented from getting in. I mean, so, so what they did is they sent a message. I don't know how they did that, whether it's a telephone message or whether it's a written piece of paper, who knows. But somehow, the, the note got up to Jesus and said, Jesus, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. I think they just want to talk to you. In reality, that means we want to put you in the insane asylum. They thought Jesus was crazy. Then he, he'd blown his mind. He was out of his mind. Now, Mary should have known better. Mary probably knew better because she knew the circumstance behind her, the virgin birth. Her brothers, you can read in John chapter 7, they weren't believing in Jesus. They mocked Him in many ways, though later they did come to faith in Christ. But there's a family following Jesus, seeking after Him in a bad way, and then we find the different family seeking after Jesus in a good way. Verse 33. He said, Who are my mother and my brothers? Let's get this note. My mother and my brothers outside seeking for Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking around at those who are sitting around him, he said, Behold, my mother and brothers. Behold, my family is following me. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. And I love the irony here. The physical family of Jesus is following Jesus because they think he's crazy. The spiritual family is following Jesus because they think he's the real deal. He is everything whom He says He is. And Jesus could equally say to this church, Who are my brother? Who's my mother? And who are my brothers? Behold, my mother and my brothers. 
For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Listen, we follow Jesus because we are His family. We don't think He's crazy. We don't think He's demon-possessed. We think He's the real deal. Reminds me of the word of C.S. Lewis. His book, Mere Christianity, which flowed out of some uh, addresses that he gave on the radio, BBC Radio, I think. He said this, I'm trying to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept His claim to be God. How many of you heard that? I think Jesus was a great teacher. I just don't think He was God. I thought it was, I mean, He's a prophet. He's a good man. He's just not, not quite God. You heard that before? C.S. Lewis says that is impossible. And just as Jesus said, Satan can't cast out Satan, you cannot say, yes, he was a great teacher, he just wasn't God. He goes on to explain. That's the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a poached egg, saying on the level with the one who says he's a poached egg, or he'd be the devil of hell himself. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He's not left that open to us. He did not intend to. That seems to me obvious that when he was neither a lunatic seems to me obvious, Lewis writes, that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend, and consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. In other words, Jesus is either the Lord of the universe, or he's a, a raving lunatic who's out of his mind like his family thought him to be, or he, he's a liar who's really cast out Satan by the power of Satan. And th- those are the only three choices you have. And you may think that he's, like the family thinks, he's crazy. I don't think so. I mean, you're, you're here each week. I appreciate that. But people you know might think, hey, he's crazy. Those like the scribes who came down from Jerusalem. You may think he's a liar. I don't think so. But you may. Your friends probably do. But Jesus proved both of them to to be false. I mean, he was totally in his right mind. You never get the sense that Jesus was any demon-possessed or or you never get the sense that he should have been in a sane asylum. Yes, he did some eccentric things, but those weren't because he was crazy. Those were because he was real. He was always sensible, always under control. He was not a lunatic. He wasn't crazy. And he wasn't lying about all this stuff. I mean, just the integrity of Jesus. The fact that that even Pilate says he's done no wrong. I mean, if he was lying, he'd be doing wrong. But Pilate said he does no wrong. And even Peter who was with him. Even could say in his first epistle that Jesus who knew no sin. He was sinless. Paul said that as well. He wasn't either a, a liar or a lunatic. He was the Lord. And really it calls us to follow Him as did His twelve disciples. And really that's, that's the supper that we celebrate today is the supper of the risen Lord, the Sovereign of the Universe, who, who gave us a command to celebrate the Supper in a remembrance of His death, to remember how it is that He reconciles us to Himself through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And we see here even Jesus, all the followers, all the different reasons why we need to follow Him because we're called, we need to follow Him because we're part of His, his family. And that is who the Lord's Supper is for. It's for the part of His spiritual family, those who embrace Him by faith, those who have denied themselves, those who have taken up the cross and said, my, all, all my eggs are in the Jesus basket. That's where my, all of my hope is. If you're not embraced Him by faith, then you're not part of His family. And I ask you when we celebrate this supper just to let the, let the cup and the bread go by. Because this is for those who, who, who trust in Him. In fact, even taking of the, the cup and taking of the bread. There's nothing magical in these things, but it is a declaration. It says, I'm believing and trusting in the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And boy, if that's you, celebrate with us today. If you're trusting anything else, just let things go by. That's okay. This is what Jesus calls us to do. He calls us to follow Him. 
He calls us to remember His death until He comes. The center point of human history when Jesus died took all the wrath of God upon Himself so that we know the grace. And in that we can rejoice. So I'm going to pray as the musicians come up and we will then celebrate the supper together. Father, I would thank You first of all for Jesus that He is neither a lunatic nor a liar. He's not a crazy man. He is the Lord of the universe. I pray that we would take Him for who He says He is in all of His fullness and all of His joy. And I I thank You for how sufficient He is, how completely trustworthy He is, and would pray, Lord, that we would uh, even rejoice in those things. We, We take the bread, we think about the crushed, broken, crucified body of Jesus. That that we hear, May we taste in some regard. And the cup, which is the cup of the new covenant, that that cup which is symbolic of the the pouring out of your blood that we might wash our robes in white through the blood of the Lamb. As we drink, may we think of you and think about your blood shed for us. May this be a time of great joy. May it be sorrow for our sin and yet joy that you've taken our sin away from us. Thank You, O Lord, that You have healed all of our iniquities. You have redeemed our life from the pit. You have crowned us with steadfast love and loving kindness. Thank You that You are merciful and gracious. You are slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness. That's everything this supper represents. is the kindness of our God. And so, Lord, even as we celebrate here, may we celebrate uh, rejoicing and trusting in You. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.